Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Nikias Duncan of the Dunker Spot podcast, and one of my absolute favorite people to read, to listen to, to talk to. And the second round, early in the second round, is a great time to do it. Lots to take in. We go through all four series, plus we talk about the Dylan Brooks reporting that came out on Tuesday because we both found that fascinating. Episode is brought to you by... FanDuel, you can go to fanduel.com slash Boston and get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. Episode runs just about an hour, lots of great stuff in here, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. Figure we might as well start with the game one that occurred on Tuesday night, the, the, the last game one, and that is the Lakers-Warriors series. I thought it was... You know, game ones are always interesting because you're kind of resetting the board. What players, what schemes, what kind of stuff there. Um, I'll, I'll open it to you instead of setting the table here. What was your biggest takeaway from game one? Um, my biggest takeaway, it kind of dove into what my big question was heading into the series um, on the Lakers side. And it was more so how dominant can Anthony Davis be, as reductive as that sounds. Like I knew coming in and just kind of digging through some of the film during the regular season series. Kevon Looney was going to get this matchup one-on-one, and he did a very good job with DeMontis Savonis in round one. And for the Lakers, and for Anthony Davis in particular, like he had to dominate that matchup in a way that forced the Warriors to have to send help elsewhere or just to open up some more things. And I think Anthony Davis did that last night. Like He was the best player on the floor that featured Stephen Curry and LeBron James. That is no small feat. And I think, honestly, you know, across this playoff run for the Lakers, like I think Anthony Davis has just been their best player. And if you Same. factor in overall availability, like I think he's just been their best player this year. And so it was just fun to watch him get downhill on his own. It was fun watching the off-ball usage that the Lakers had for him, like something that popped for me early going through some of the regular season tape. And there wasn't much to take from it since I think we got one matchup out of the four games during the regular season that included LeBron and Steph. And that was the season opener when Russell Westbrook was on the roster. So not much to glean, but they did like stashing Anthony Davis in the corner, having a guard screen from him and just kind of playing out of that. And so watching them go to that a few times and making those guys navigate, um, that, that was some good stuff. And then defensively, Anthony Davis was all over the place. And a deeper drop, getting closer up to the level, the occasional late switch for him, just his general rim protection, the ground coverage from him and the rebounding, which really popped on the stat sheet. But also he got some contested ones that was pretty t- that were pretty tough in that game one as well. So I, I think the story of that game one was Anthony Davis really set the table on both ends of the floor. I completely agree, and it's no coincidence that I believe this was the Warriors' worst paint-converting game of the entire season. They were 14 of 35, and a lot of times at Chase Center, it's good to use paint instead of restricted area because they don't always draw those lines perfectly. Mm -hmm. And the Warriors, this has been true going back to when Davis was in New Orleans. They are more cognizant of not only his actual presence, but his potential presence than Mm -hmm. any other rim protector in the league. And they're also more cognizant of Davis's mobility. Now, it's not what it was when he was at Kentucky and was doing everything. But one, AD contested per the um, the tracking stats. He contested 10 three-pointers last night. Like that is that is on that's on the high mount. He contested 10 twos and 10 threes. But that mobility led to some really interesting decisions from the Warriors. Like Curry threw some floaters that would have normally been layups, and they weren't really good floaters. Like there was one late in the game that was that was like that, and there were numbers throughout. 
And because I brought up mobility for a specific reason, and that's because the Warriors over the years developed a very normal, justified, but specific game plan for Rudy Gobert, where they would bring him out on the floor and either make him defend a faster player in an ISO, Mm -hmm. or they would do that and then know that there wasn't a whole heck of a lot behind him at the rim, and then they could, you know, send it to the opposite side or somebody who could attack. And the Warriors didn't do nearly as much of that until, like, the final four minutes of the game yesterday. And Mm -hmm. it's hard to parse, and we'll just need more data on this, whether it's Game one, you don't tailor things as much to your opponent. The Warriors in particular just run their stuff. They don't necessarily do that. Or if it was Anthony Davis is not Rudy Gobert. They're both wonderful players. They have different strengths and weaknesses, and that stuff isn't going to work as well against him. And finding out which of those two explanations is more correct will be extremely important and dispositive for the rest of the series. I think that's a really good point. And as you mentioned, like later in the game, the Warriors try to get it. That kind of coincided with them closing with their smaller group. So I think that also played a part in, okay, we might have a little bit easier time trying to sp- uh, space Anthony Davis out or just force him to defend higher up on the floor because we have more speed. We have more shooting on the floor. And like the last shot from Jordan Poole aside, like he actually played pretty well in game one, which I think is going to be very important for Golden State moving forward. But no, that is going to be interesting. And to your point about Golden State just kind of going back to running their stuff, it was funny, like, doing a little prep earlier and seeing uh, on second spectrum, Steph ran, I think he received 42 on-ball picks in that game seven against Sacramento, and it dropped right back to 22 in game one. (laughs) Well, this is probably why Warrior fans are upset on Twitter. That that would make some sense. Um, So I do wonder if the usage shifts at all there, because I think with Anthony Davis – one, it just speaks to how good and how versatile he is because you look at him early in a play, he has the Kavon Looney matchup, he's just camping in the paint. But then you involve him, he chews up that space so quickly. Like, even some of the tough pull up threes that Steph was able to make, he's in a drop, but it's a little bit higher than what you would have seen <clears throat> during the regular season for Anthony Davis. But he just closes off that space so well. So Steph will make it, but it's still a contest. And it feels like here's this pocket against drop, but you can't really do that against Anthony Davis. Like he is just when he's locked in and healthy defensively, he's unlike almost anyone else in the league. For sure. And and I think that you brought up Anthony Davis as a help defender. I think that's an incredibly important part of it. But then the other thing, and you, you touched on this briefly, but I think it bears a little bit of emphasis and further color, is mm-hmm. Davis, the way he bends help as an offensive player, because something that was really different, you know, it's funny, two days apart, I was in the arena for both games between game seven and game one, is that whoever was guarding AD, which was typically Looney, but at times it was Draymond, very few times it was Jermichael Green, was very unwilling to leave him. And so what that meant was they weren't challenging, and I mean, LeBron's going to make the pass every time. You know, that's that's just a perfunctory exercise. But, mm-hmm. like, so there would be circumstances where Dennis Schroeder, who had a wonderful game, is driving down the lane, and typically it's Looney, doesn't want to leave Davis to get a better contest on Schroeder's straight-line drive. So the advantage that Schroeder created never really gets addressed. And so he gets a, gets finished, gets fouls, everything else. And it's a tough to do. Part of I, I've long described it that offense is a big part of that is making defenses make tough decisions. And mm-hmm. Schroeder, I thought, did a did a really good job of that. But you're basically choosing an easier finish over forcing the pass in the finish. Like there isn't necessarily a right or wrong answer. It's extremely context dependent. But it was striking how differently they approached that because of a player who was not really involved in the action. Mm-hmm. And again, like that kind of speaks to one, Anthony Davis just being locked in, but also him being more aggressive uh, during this postseason overall than we've really seen him consistently throughout the regular season. And so you can't really afford to help off as much because now he's not even if he gets that dump off, he's not taking just like a little push shot. He can make that. He's getting into your chest or he's going up to, to slam that sucker. And that leads to the free throw disparity. And boy, the numbers were stark, but it made sense watching the game just in terms of the shot profile. And again, just that overall deterrence factor that Anthony Davis had. Like the Warriors weren't able to really match the paint points on the other side. It, it was it was stark to watch. It was stark to watch. And I mean, the Warriors 
the Lakers earned a vast majority of their free throws and foul calls. There were a few grifty, but usually those weren't actually generating free throws, except in the sense that they uh, pushed up the foul, and then when they got over the limit, like there was one where, completely correctly called, Clay Thompson fouled Anthony Davis a mile and a half from the basket, and it became free throws, and that gets into into everything else. But yeah, the Warriors weren't they weren't doing things that generate foul calls very often, and and so that you know you're not going to get that kind of volume at the free throw line and that's how you can lose a game that and you know the lakers successful offense where you shoot 21 of 53 on threes like you know you have to be struggle from two not get to the line and in some cases it could be also get demolished in the possession game which didn't happen in game one there are two to me big questions moving forward and they both involve defensive limited guards Mm -hmm. so in game one Former Warrior D'Angelo Russell, A, he played a very good offensive game, but B, the Warriors didn't really go after him that much on defense. And and late, there was a little bit, and they ended up pulling him for Vanderbilt, who I thought did a good job overall. And then the other one is Jordan Poole. And part of the reason the Warriors will lean on Jordan Poole in some of these circumstances is the lack of a suitable alternative. Because if the goal is to have somebody who the other team will respect from three— ideally somebody who can do a little bit with the ball in their hands, then your pool is slim. Some days maybe Dante DiVincenzo is hitting those shots. Some days maybe Gary Payton's hitting those shots. They, I mean, I'm sure they would love it if Moses Moody or Jonathan Kaminga could do that, but right mm-hmm. now you don't necessarily have them. And if pool's out there, the Lakers did a better job than the Warriors, as they often do, understanding, okay, this is an easy point of attack. And mm-hmm. so to me, if pool has to stay on the floor because he won't always play as well as he did offensively in game one. And if Russell can stay on the floor, then that's a pretty big advantage for the Lakers. Yeah, like it feels like the infrastructure is a little bit better for D'Lo here. One, there's just a lot more size on the Lakers front. So even if he gets switched out, because I think he started out the game on Andrew Wiggins, if I remember correctly. He did. Um, so like even if he ends up switching into an action against Steph, and Steph wants the boogie in space, the Lakers can just kind of pinch behind him, knowing, we, okay, we got Anthony Davis back here, we got LeBron James back here. Austin Reeves is a long is a long guard slash wing. He can kind of pinch in and help if necessary. Of course, you have to you know account for the off ball move for Golden State as well. But like conceptually, there's a, a lot more a lot more help behind him in general. For Jordan Poole, like they trend smaller, and then when you have Draymond at the five, like it's really just Draymond that's tasked with cleaning up a whole bunch of stuff. And he's likely going to get the Anthony Davis or the LeBron assignment depending on how they're matched up. And so it becomes even more difficult for Jordan Poole to hold up defensively. And this is on top of just the general emphasis for the Lakers. Like, hey, let's get downhill on the D'Angelo Russell front. Like, the pull-up shooting was nice. It was refreshing to watch him get downhill Yeah, quite a few times and get some layups. I was like, oh, this is not what I factored into the calculus. Like, uh, my guy Steve Jones Jr., he had the he basically had the guards in the series as his X-Factors. And a part of that was going to be D'Angelo Russell having good decision-making, but also being able to get downhill and pressure the rim a little bit. And he did that to a degree that I did not expect – uh, touched on briefly what Dennis Schroeder was able to do, played his reference a little bit earlier. That was kind of baked in for me. Like, I think he was going to have some matchups that would be favorable for him to get all the way downhill. But, man, if all of them are doing that, like, I don't know if the Warriors have enough of, like, as you speak, the balance there. to where They may have guys on the perimeter, Gary Payton II, Jonathan Kaminga, if they dust them off, that, okay, we can hold up in space defensively. But how would they be guarded? Because I think back to the Gary Payton II minutes in this game one, and... They, the Lakers largely didn't guard him when he was on the perimeter. I was waiting on the Warriors to lean into more screen usage for him on or off the ball just to kind of mitigate that some. But they just didn't care about him out there. And even with Moses Moody, who I think can be the best pool alternative in terms of can make plays with the ball, can knock down shots, can hold up defensively. They don't really guard him like a spacer either. And he hasn't been guarded like that as a spacer so far in this postseason. So it's it's a tough loop for the Warriors. It is. And on the guard front, another player to mention is that when the Warriors put extra heat on D'Angelo Russell at times, they put a better defender on him. Then, or, or for example, when they moved Curry off of Russell after Russell got Curry into foul trouble, mm-hmm. then they just leaned more on Austin Reeves. And that's one of the huge benefits of having, I mean, multiple players. And we're not even talking about, oh yeah, LeBron James is a part of this because he was passive offensively for most of the game. But the idea of having multiple credible creators, because that way you can't really take stuff away. Or even just more basically, if there's somebody you want to attack, then it's harder to get away from that. And it's something that Memphis 
in part because like they they had you know like t- missing time and and job wasn't quite himself and everything else like they didn't they didn't have that and the kings didn't really exploit that as much on the warriors because they didn't have as many perimeter defenders and so it's a really interesting question on how you want to handle that and like the other part of it that you brought up which is so important is davis presence back there means that the lakers help philosophies can be really different and so you can you know you can kind of bring stuff up and that that compounds the Warriors typically, like, they, they have these unbelievable shooters, like, they have the key the key guys, but a lot of their lineups involve not only Draymond, but at least one other player where they might hit a shot every now and again, but if you're regularly helping, they're not going to demolish you too much. So, like, the mm-hmm. Gary Payton, as you said, they weren't paying attention to him, DiVincenzo, like, that sort of player. And they're, you know, in an ideal world for them, Andre Guadalla, he doesn't fill that role, but he does a lot of other things well, or somebody else, and it does, I don't know that they have that fifth guy. Yeah, it's just kind of tough. And just to touch briefly on like the guard and the matchup front, like one thing that surprised me early in this game, you mentioned Steph getting in foul trouble. Like seeing Draymond Green get the D-low matchup mm-hmm. was like, wait a minute, this is not good if you're Golden State because we've seen Draymond on guards before. Like going back to last playoffs, that was one of the <clears throat> one of the things that immediately stood out in the Western Conference Finals, whereas Draymond just getting Jalen Brunson off real. Like, okay, we're not going to let you drive to the basket and get us in rotation. In the first round, we saw Draymond against De'Aaron Fox and some uneven results from De'Aaron Fox trying to figure out that matchup. If D'Lo is getting that gambit because the other guards just can't hold up or you're trying to preserve stuff from foul trouble this series could get problematic and again you don't want to overreact to a game one but like that was something that definitely popped for me as i was watching that game especially because needing or having draymond green in that matchup means that you basically lose him as a help defender because mm-hmm. d'angelo russell is a good enough shooter that you're not gonna leave him wide 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 open so that draymond can contest something around the basket and that you know that's a more it's it's an interesting thing and then the other key question kind of on that front for the warriors and for steve kerr and this coaching staff is you can handle a limited offensive player like defensively in a number of different ways like one of those is you put your worst defensive player on them so like the trey young on player x like that that idea but the other way you can do it and i incidentally i think of the warriors with tony allen as one of the originators though of course it has existed for time immemorial is you put your best help defender on that player because that way they can roam, they can mess everything up. And, and yeah, uh, Jared Vanderbilt, you know, he'll hit a three or a couple threes, but you're you're generally doing that. And incidentally, team that did that super well, the Lakers with, with Dylan Brooks last series. And we'll talk about Dylan Brooks later. But I think that choice for the Warriors is going to be really telling because in some of those base lineups for these two teams, who they started with, putting Draymond on Vanderbilt and just living with D'Angelo Russell getting a few extra difficult shots and maybe getting a few extra fouls, like I think that's probably the right approach. Yeah, I think that's where I would go because you just need Draymond to clean up some stuff on the back end, especially if Kevon Looney's actually going to end up needing some help against Anthony Davis. And right. then you want to overreact to a game one. But if that becomes a matchup like, OK, maybe he can't hold up one on one here. Maybe we do need to send some help. You're going to need Draymond to be able to kind of roll over, swipe at Anthony Davis as he gets into his gather, just provide that secondary rim protection and maybe force some kickouts, force Anthony Davis to make some passes. Like if there is a knock for him as like a primary creator or primary scorer, it's like the passing in terms of placement, in terms of how quickly he processes who is open, that isn't elite. That isn't top tier. I don't think he's necessarily bad at it, but that is an area that you can ding him. And like you have to win those kind of margins during the playoff series. But yeah, like I think it's going to be very telling to see in game two. Where is Draymond going to be stationed? How much can Steph hold up? And like just very quietly, it hasn't been the greatest postseason defensively for Steph. Like he did have some struggles navigating screens and navigating those handoffs in the Sacramento series. And if D'Lo gets him into foul trouble or just a point where the Lakers have to or the Warriors have to figure out different uh, matchups, that's a bit of a problem. He can't be in that zone. He hasn't been in that zone in a very long time. Like, I think Steph's been underrated as a defensive player for a while. But, like, he can't get to the place to where he's actually getting dinged and he's becoming a problem, too. It's a great point and something worth watching not only in Game 2, but throughout the rest of this series. Well, okay, I was going to end it there, but... How did, did game one, so like I said, I went from the Warriors in six to thinking the Lakers are more likely to win the series now than the Warriors are after game one. And that is a pretty big swing, but it was because some of the theory of the case for the Lakers worked out better than anticipated. Where, you don't have to give a specific prediction, but where are you right now on where you think this shakes out? Um, 
on the pod, I said Warriors in seven. I The game one was kind of stark. I don't think I saw enough in that game to move me off of that. Like, I think mm-hmm. this is going to be a long series either way. And I think there are some very real advantages for both sides. Like, we mentioned the shot profile. And the Lakers just win the paint in general. And the Warriors made, what, 21 threes yes. in game one? Like, it won't always be that. But I also feel like the Warriors can just press the, hey, how about we just run these high step-up screens for Steph Curry? Like, again, 42 on-ball picks received in game seven against Sacramento back to 22 in game one like if that's at 30 or 35 like how different does the Lakers defense look and so and even within I feel like the Lakers thoroughly outplayed the Warriors in game one like we were it was a three-point game tie game late in the fourth still like the Warriors still very much could have rallied and won that game so I I haven't seen enough to move me off the prediction but the Lakers looked really good last night totally fair uh Let's move on to the other Western Conference series, which is through two games and might be through kind of in some ways more than that. And I think that sometimes because there's so much going on and because, you know, we have four series to track now. And then, of course, there's everything else that's going on, crowning an MVP and some of the offseason stuff that's already getting there. We can get to a point where it's like, oh, well, once a series looks like it's done, you kind of pass up and move on. And I mean, Chris Paul being out, the Nuggets already being up 2-0. The series is not over, but it is, there is a pretty likely winner. But what I don't want is for that, not even reality, but reasonably likely outcome to overshadow what happened in the first two games of the series. Because I thought this was absolutely fascinating, particularly the Suns on offense. Yeah, like you go Suns on offense, and I think there are some things to kind of dig into there. And specifically, the spacing in their half-court offense has just been really wonky. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they've, they've let Denver off the hook in some areas. But I, I'm very much pro-Denver in this. And I say this as someone um, on the podcast. I picked the Suns in six in this series. But I even cautioned then, like, hey, I understand why people are like the Suns have all this firepower, the Denver Nuggets in terms of, like, scheme versatility, like, you have some question marks. The Suns are just going to score 130. Like, I kind of caution against that. Like, no, like, they can make this a little bit tougher than you're expecting. And with Michael Porter Jr. in particular, like, hey, this isn't the same defender that we saw uh, in that 2021 series. Like, there have been some rumors there. But I've been really impressed with what Denver's been able to do defensively. If Kevin Durant is initiating action, coming off a pick and roll or going into a dribble handoff, it is Jokic at the level. They're peeling in their help on the weak side early, and they are just funneling, they're limiting the decision-making tree for Kevin Durant. And they're doing the same thing for Devin Booker. Like, you are not turning the corner. You're not getting easy pull-ups. You're not getting easy driving opportunities. You're not going to get an easy pass to DeAndre Ayton, though we are fine with making him make decisions. But the help is coming off of whoever that fifth is. If that's Josh Okogie, if that's Torrey Craig, we're not super worried. If you are going to beat us on this possession or these possessions, you can only do so with these options. And through two games, Denver has mostly nailed their game plan. And I've been really impressed with how they've been able to go about that. Narrowing the decision tree is such a good way of putting it and they they i think they denver has deserves a lot of credit which isn't always given for how they've made the quality of the sun shots worse like it isn't always mm-hmm. just the offense oh they're they're taking all these mid-rangers it's like well part of it is what denver is willing to concede what their what passes are available what passes are not and the suns especially in game one you know the the idea of like oh the, their guys want to take mid-rangers and that's true But the quality of the shots that they're generating and even like the passing opportunities, the assist opportunities not really being there is so important. Yeah. And again, like even going to the Phoenix side, like, again, they have helped Denver in this regard with just how they're spacing some of their actions, some of the tempo that they're getting into in the half court. So I think there's still room for a little bit better. Um, Again, the Chris Paul injury just stinks for all parties, honestly. Like it just stinks that he gets to this point of the season and – he has the groin injury. But this is also part of the calculus for an aging point guard. So, like, you can't necessarily be surprised by it. But, like, moving forward, <clears throat> and this is something that Steve hit on as well, like, the uh, Suns can do a better job of kind of stringing out uh, things at the top when Jokic is at the level and really straining out that back line and really straining out the help and then making decisions from there. So there's room for improvement there. Um, with some of the players that are being gapped here, like it was Chris Paul before he got hurt, like, taking those shots in rhythm and not doing the catch and hold and allowing Denver to get back, uh, you know, rotate back, get matched up. Like, those are things that are very controllable for Phoenix. And then even going to the game, too, like Kevin Durant missed shots that he normally doesn't. Kevin Booker missed some shots that he normally doesn't. 
And so it's easy to look at two old Denver's defense has been very good, and it is, and then just kind of lean, okay, the series is over. But ultimately, Denver won two home games. Phoenix is coming back. I would hope after two games that Monty Williams has at least a better idea of what he wants his rotation to be in terms of the guys that are coming off the bench because it feels like he's still very much searching. Like, that is problematic. But depending on what that looks like, if you insert campaign into the Chris Paul spot, like, I would imagine at the very least he's going to be more aggressive when the ball swings to him. You may get more juice attacking closeouts or you just get those shots up and kind of improve the flow of the offense for Phoenix in that regard. Um, And in general, you may just get better corner shooting from some of those fits because those are shots that, again, Denver is okay with living with. I don't think we're going to get to a point to where – Denver feels like they have to shift their coverage because Josh Okogie is knocking down threes or Torrey Craig is making knocking down threes. But ultimately, if those are shots that are being given, I think the number was two of 12 on corner threes in game two for Phoenix. Like if that's four of 12, if that's five of 12 and you get better shot making from your stars, like it, this is still very much in range with Phoenix. I guess it's my overarching point. It's in range. It will take a lot from Durant and Booker. I mean, the playmaking burden, I think that's a part of why their shots weren't going in in the fourth was A, they were getting worse shots and B, they were, you know, they were tired. Like the, a little bit tired legs and I'm really interested in the decision that Michael Malone made in the fourth quarter to play Bruce Brown primarily over Michael Porter Jr. and I agree with it and and part of what that did is it allowed the Nuggets to have three strong defenders on the floor without sacrificing a ton offensively you still have Jamal Murray you still have Jokic out there and so that allowed you to have because you think about think about Phoenix particularly without Chris Paul is having these two large threats. And so for significant stretches, they didn't even, in the fourth quarter, they didn't even have Aaron Gordon on either of those guys because Caldwell Pope was doing such a good job. Bruce Brown was doing a good job. And that, especially when the other team can't rely on some of those other players to create, like they can... You know, it's the advantage creation versus advantage conversion idea, where it's like they can, you know, Tory Craig can hit open shots, but he's not going to generate open shots. Like that, and then nobody wants him to. Like that's not, it's not a competitive advantage. And so, yeah. those situations, like the the ability to do that, is is striking. And I mean, it's so funny how this happens. Is like, well, the reason why you can play that many good defenders is because you have. Jokic and Murray, particularly Jokic, especially in Game Two, that your yeah. offense can survive. And like there, there's always yeah. this duality. It's kind of the reverse of what we were talking about earlier with the Lakers Warriors series. Is you can play better defenders or better offense players if you have the other side shored up enough to be able to weather that storm. Mm-hmm. And that's a fun level of flexibility that Denver has. And it's so funny with all the questions that I in particular had about Denver's bench. Like they made the move for Reggie Jackson, Thomas Bryant, neither one of those guys in the rotation at this point. I was high on Zeke Naji. He's also not in the rotation. Just trying to figure out what is this backup front court look like who's in the backcourt at this point and they've been able to press the right buttons and bruce brown the way that he's kind of picked up since honestly since march like it's been a solid season for him overall but his play since march has really been good on both ends of the floor and you mentioned he got the assignment instead of michael porter jr to close out that fourth quarter the defense very important but also on a night that jamal murray really didn't have it like just having another guy that could credibly make decisions that can mm-hmm. knock down shots that can attack creases can be used as a screener in some of Denver's actions. They love using Jamal Murray as one of those cross screeners or one of those back screeners. You can use Bruce Brown in that way as well. He has plenty of experience as a screener. We go back to the Brooklyn days for him. So being able to replicate a lot of that different usage and take some pressure off of Jamal Murray and ultimately play off of Nikola Jokic, who was just insane in that game to set a tone, set tone very early in that one. It's it's just Denver's in a really good place with their bench, and that's that might be the biggest surprise for me for this Denver run because we've seen the defense hit the notes. It was bad to start. They hit the notes. They ran away with the West. Defense slipped again. But you had a very you had a sample like okay, this is what it looks like when it hits, and they've done it, and they can do it. The and who knows? Maybe they'll unearth Zeke Nagy at some point. Maybe Michael Malone will allow him yeah. to play. Yeah, shoot, it might at this point, but I, at the point at that point, like you, we've seen it. And we know they can do it. The bench has been inconsistent. It's been a question mark all year long. So it's been nice to see like Bruce Brown step into the game too. But overall, he's played well. The minutes that they've gotten out of Jeff Green, being able to flow into Aaron Gordon at the five when Jokic sits, the nine Jokic minutes have definitely been an issue all year long up until the postseason, which is funny enough. 
it's nice to see this Denver team kind of coming together. And it also just kind of highlights this is a Denver team that's, you know, the core has mostly been together. They've been together for a while. This Phoenix team is relatively new. Like they just traded for Kevin Durant in February. And so it's telling that Monty Williams is kind of searching, okay, who's the fifth? Um, when we do want to sit some of our starters in game one, it's DeAndre Ayton, Chris Paul, and Devin Booker on the floor at the same time to open up the second quarter. In game two, it's Devin Booker plus bench and Ish Wainwright's out there and insert bench player here's out here. And then he comes out and now it's Kevin Durant with his bench letter. Like Monty's trying to find it. And it feels like Denver's kind of found it with the rotation. That's really, that's pop for me through two games. Yeah, it's, uh, we'll, we'll see where it bears out. Still got a little bit of time for it, but yeah, the, 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 the questions, the questions are kind of thinning in some ways for me. Plenty more to discuss with Nikias Duncan, but first a message from FanDuel. Make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA playoffs because right now new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. There are great promotions every day, a really, really good app, and player props can be a really fun way to get into it. You don't have to necessarily get the prediction for the whole game right, but you can pick something more specific. It could be rebounds, it could be points, and that that can be a lot of fun. So there's no better place to bet all the playoff action than America's number one sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com slash Boston, B-O-S-T-O-N, and get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's FanDuel.com slash Boston. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA, must be 21 and over in specific states. First online real money wager only, $10 deposit required, refund issued as a non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com sportsbook. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342. That's Arizona. You can also dial 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. 1-800-9-W-I-T-H-I-T for Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or ksgamblinghelp.com for Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana, gamblinghelplinema.org or call 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts or visit mdgamblinghelp.org for Maryland, 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York and one 800 522-4700 in Wyoming, or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.NET in West Virginia. Before we move on from the West, I mean, it was jarring for me because somebody who covers the league and who focuses on transactions in the CBA, I cannot recall ever seeing anything like the reporting that came out on Tuesday that the Grizzlies reportedly will not bring back Dylan Brooks under any circumstance. And it's A, weird that it came out. Like, because there are cases where that happens. Like, there are obviously circumstances where teams are not going to bring back players. But for it to come out publicly, and for it to come out publicly basically two months before the start of free agency was gobsmacking. I just didn't like a lot of that. And I don't know how to parse through. In this specific case, I don't know who to parse through. Like, okay, who leaked what? Why is this the wording? Did the wording come from whoever leaked it? Did it come? Like, I don't know how to parse through all of that, so I'm not going to speculate on that front. But it's just odd. Like, I don't think it is out of the question for Den- for Memphis to move on from Dylan Brooks. I think that's very fair for them to do. And I think ultimately for Memphis to take the next step, they are going to need an upgrade at the wing. That's whether they kept Dylan Brooks or not. Like, even if they kept him, but then they made a trade elsewhere, and then Dylan Brooks is not coming off the bench or whatever, however you want to handle that. I think a wing upgrade was going to be necessary for them, period. So them moving on, especially after what this playoff run has been with some of the antics and, oh boy, not talking, <laughs> not talking post-game and all this stuff. I can understand them saying, hey, let's try to clean some stuff up. But the under no circumstance wording is just weird for me, especially, you know, to your point, for it to come out as early as it did. And because of all the antics surrounding Dylan Brooks this year and that wording, it's now just turned into Dylan Brooks is about to be out the league and he's just bad. And I'm just like, no, I don't think that's the case. Like the all defense teams haven't been released yet. And I don't think he's going to make it. But like he had a very strong case to be an all defense selection at guard or sure. wherever you want to have him. Like he was that good defensively this year. He did not shoot the ball well uh, from three this year, and the overall shot selection thing is an issue. But, like, we're looking at, what, four of the last five years? He's been league average or better on catch-and-shoot threes. It's not like he doesn't have value as a basketball player. 
Now, is that worth the, I think it was Ramona Shelburne that pointed out that he may want 25 million or something like that. Am I giving that to Dylan Brooks? No. And if that's part of the calculus for Memphis wanting to move on to, I also think that's fair. But this piling on has just felt really weird. It's it's just really felt weird. It's especially weird when you consider that from the stuff that we know. And the, the, so I'll, I'll lay out two different theories here. So one okay. of them is, well, I, I this part I'm pretty confident in, is that the source, that this did not come out because of anybody in Dylan Brooks's camp, because this is devastating for his value and negotiation. Because the idea in part is that you have this team that that you started for that needs to have a player like you. And if they don't want you back, then that takes the team off the board. But it also, they're the team that knows you best. Like this is, it, it's an indictment and all that stuff. So I don't, I'm not saying it directly came from the Grizzlies or it came from somebody who knows their thinking. It's just, if somebody in Dylan Brooks camp knew this, it would be malpractice for them to tell anybody and release it. Like that's, it's just, it, it yeah. does them no service. The, the second kind of element of it that's so like that that is that kind of part of it is that I think I think there could be and this doesn't justify what happened like I don't I don't I I, I think it was I think it's bad for a lot of different reasons and you know not that anybody needs to be punished or anything like that is that what what we have seen is insufficient for this kind of a response because you think about all of the different actions and antics that players have taken over the years. And yes, you can do a sliding scale, like Kyrie Irving has gotten away with a lot more than this and had teams clamoring to sign him. Kyrie Irving is a better player than Dylan Brooks, but Dylan Brooks is a meaningfully better player than a lot of other guys in the league too. Like He is a starting caliber player, at least in the regular season, at a general position group that is hard to find. If he was six yeah. foot nine, it would be better, but he's not. But he's still like, you know, he was still a valuable player for the Memphis Grizzlies this year. And so there is in just a nature, and I understand this. I was I was on the internet when I was in my teens and stuff like that. I understand the, the desire to dunk on somebody who you who does things that irritate you, like publicly and you yeah. know, like on the court and off the court. Like I get all that. But there has at times there is a conflation between like oh this guy's hard to deal with like that or he's bad at his job like Dylan Brooks is a very good basketball player who just doesn't make sense on the six to eight best teams in the league yeah and like I think again it's fair to parse it out and I am in no way shape or form saying hey guys no jokes allowed about basketball players of course it doesn't have to it doesn't have to get that deep at all like some of the Dylan Brooks jokes were funny and some of them were just warranted with (laughs) some of the trending topics were amazing on Twitter yeah, like that's tremendous stuff. Like I don't want to lose the heart of that. We don't have to be that tight about it. But again, like let's make sure we recognize, hey, like this guy still has value. Again, like is it twenty five mil a year? No, I think it's probably still a little bit higher than the mid level exception. And I think the defense is valuable. Um, <clears throat> like I think he can still help a good team. Like I do think Dylan Brooks can't be the irritator. He can't be the veteran presence on a roster. And I think that's also part of the stuff with Memphis as well. Like, he can't be the enforcer in that kind of capacity. Like, again, I don't know. I'm not sourced or anything like that. But, like, you look at a team like Miami that has a very clear hierarchy and all these dudes are tough, and then you add Dylan Brooks to that mix, in, you know, to that mix, that's a spot that makes sense for him, like, conceptually. Like, he needs to be in that kind of situation. I don't think he can be the guy for a good playoff team. I don't think he can be the, you know, I saw some rumors about, like, Houston. Like, I don't, I don't like that. I don't think he can be the veteran presence in that regard, but he can very much be a part of it. And again, zooming out, he's still good at basketball. Like I, he can still knock down catch and shoot threes. He has enough of a handle to be closeouts, and the defense is legitimately very good. And I would argue it was all defense level this season. And he's twenty seven. It ain't like he's falling out of his primary thing. Like it's, it just felt like it's gone a little too far on the other side with Dylan Brooks. One thing I always like to keep an eye on in these circumstances where it seems like a player's valuation is lower than it quote-unquote should be is the possibility that they take less money on a short-term deal to try to to try to rehab it and for brooks like you brought up the idea of like there there are kind of two concerns one is like the yeah don't pay him 25 billion the other is the idea there was some reporting about this on tuesday that he wants a larger role within the offense which he's not good enough like you, you i know almost every player in the nba would love to have a larger role within their team's offense, but the reason most of them don't is because 
there are players who are better at that than them. And Dylan Brooks is a phenomenal example. He is not good enough on ball to get more on ball reps. And Memphis desperately at times due to injuries has needed somebody the last couple of years to do that. Dylan Brooks either has not done it well or has not been asked to do it. And so you, so you tailed at it. But if the circumstance comes out, and so there, there are a bunch of different teams that I think have makes sense. This isn't going to be the Dylan Brooks free agency preview, and you could talk about even – I don't love the personality fit with a team like Indiana, but he would help them a lot. Like he would – having somebody who can defend multiple positions, all that sort of stuff. But Brooks, like if he moves off of that salary expectation and it becomes taking – 13 million versus 10 million versus seven for a single year at that point you might start to think about a place where the you know the 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 climate is perfect like the and i'm not talking about weather i'm talking you know i'm not talking about like physical i'm talking about like the they have a place for you they have a structure you won't get exposed in the ways that that the memphis series did so maybe it's and you do that for one year maybe two years and hopefully you keep your nose down you don't get a ton of headlines in part because maybe your team's not quite as good and then they go oh yeah you're a credible basketball player and then you get it but the problem with that is a there's no guarantee that that next contract is ever going to come and b like it's a it's a big bitter pill to swallow mm-hmm. yeah like, that can that can absolutely be a hit to the ego like if you feel like again dylan brooks even with the antics and the kind of kind of ended this year if I'm Dylan Brooks and I'm coming off of the best defensive season of my career and I've had to kind of be a rock defensively, one, while Jaron was out early in the season, and two, like you just kind of had to hold down the front defensively with him and Jaron while Ja was out for his stuff. And then it just, oh, we don't want you at all. Like that's, he's human. Like that's absolutely going to be an ego hit. And then that also translates into, okay, now you're going to have to take less. You're going to have to take a prove it deal after you just kind of proved it <laughs> in a sense. Like that's a lot for him to have to cycle through. Again, like some of this is self-inflicted, so I'm not trying to remove all of that from him. But that's going to be a lot. But I do think the opportunity exists for him to take that kind of one plus, you know, that kind of one year deal, take a flyer somewhere. Again, if it's not a team as good as Miami, maybe it's mid tier like Chicago. Like you see what just Patrick Beverly's general energy did for that Bulls team when he first got there. Like I think you could help on the wing, give him at least a little bit more size than what they had to parse through. But teams like that, I could see him taking that one-year deal and then going somewhere else when teams kind of realize, okay, wait, yeah, he's actually still just good. And maybe he just needed a different environment. Maybe he had to do some soul searching. It was some combination of the two. And things look a little bit better moving forward. Again, it helps that he's only, what, 27? It, like, it, this uh, is 32-year-old Dylan Brooks. It's a different conversation altogether. For sure. And and that's also uh, an argument against, like, I mean, you can wait, like, a year maybe for that next contract, but you can't wait two or three because then that, that next team might not be interested in giving you the years. But w- that's now become a significantly more compelling saga. And I thought the Grizzlies had kind of penned themselves in with Dylan Brooks by the extensions that they signed with Adams and, and Clark and, and all that. And, like, they missed those guys in the playoffs, obviously. But now they're... Apparently, reportedly moving in a different direction, don't need to get into sign trades and all that stuff. Instead, we can discuss the Eastern Conference, and I will give you the choice. We have these two series going on. Which of them do you want to discuss first? Um, Let's dig into Heat Knicks, since we already got two games on the docket there. You know the Heat extremely well. You know all 30 teams extremely well, but I think you know the Heat. And my take after Game 2 was... Even though the Knicks won the game and had some some strong performances, guys like like RJ Barrett and Hartenstein, I thought did a nice job off their bench. That game two made me more confident that the Heat are going to win the series in time. Do you agree with that mm-hmm. assessment? Um, I think you know, fasting back to the earlier Warriors Lakers conversation, like, well, I haven't seen enough to bend it there. For me, it, I've seen enough to tilt it a little bit on the pod. I predicted. I think my exact wording was, "I'm going Heat and seven, but I don't feel great about it just because of some of the interior advantages New York can have." But after seeing those first two games, Miami steals the game one and then nearly wins the game two. And boy, did they play an ungodly amount of zone in that game two. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but. <clears throat> I'm just watching the Gabe Vincent pull-ups, and I'm watching Kyle Lowry just find the aggression button for what feels like the first time in months. I I guess I don't want to short sell it because he did close the year pretty strong. Um, But I'm just watching these guys claw and fight. Like, Max Strews making big plays. He gets hurt. He comes back into the game. And it's just like, man, these were the performances from the Heat role players on the road in New York. And if they were able to 
claw and fight and could very well have been up 2-0 heading into, you know, the game three on Saturday, which gives Jimmy Butler a chance to rest. Very important for him. If that's what they look like on the road, like Jim, you get Jimmy Butler back in game three, I would assume anyway, haven't seen that officially announced um, as a recording, but I would assume he's back for game three. And now you have the confidence of what you've done in the two games and you're heading back home. Like I feel better about heat and seven. I would be willing to move to heat and six based on what I've seen in the first two games so far. One number that really stood out to me was Miami having a first shot half court rating of 110 in game two. It's like, Oh, without yeah. Jimmy Butler and, and, and it wasn't like Miami was drilling every three imaginable. You, you think about those circumstances where a game's that you look at the like structural elements and you look at the final score and you go, oh well, that's interesting. And so like for Miami to be close against the Knicks, but eventually lose a game that was you know with that was in play in the in the final moments. You go, you say, oh Miami, you know the role players at the threes, and they maybe they maybe they got a bunch of turnovers. Not really, like it was. It wasn't really any of those things. Mm-hmm. Miami only had one steal in the entire game. They shot thirty five percent from three, which was below what the Knicks did. Though they of course attempted more, as they basically always do. And as you brought up, I mean the, the support players, Gabe Vincent and Martin, had a fantastic game and and mm-hmm. was was very impressive and. And so like, it, it reminded me that I think it was two years ago I picked the Heat under, and part of it was that I didn't believe in their I didn't believe in their role players, and then I'm like, oh, if Jimmy misses time, if Ben misses time, they're going to be they're going to be in a, uh, in trouble. And then that year, Struess blows up, they get all these other players, and and so <laughs> and it's like, oh, I'm never going to doubt the Heat again. You know, like they they can pull these players out of thin air, or everything else. And then this year, for most of the season, that whole structure fell apart. You know, the, the, those players yeah. weren't, weren't up to the standard. And when they tried to bring in somebody else, they didn't do great either. Duncan Robinson. And then over, let's call it the last month of the regular season, the playoffs, it's been like, oh, th- like they, do, they basically defied expectations in the same place three times in the last two years, which is so bizarre. <laughs> and also very much like the Miami Heat. And so that... I'm interested also, you brought up the zone, in how Spolstra's approach on Julius Randle changes once Jimmy Butler is available. And you might not think of those things as related because Butler won't be guarding Julius Randle much, but I thought they were sending too much help. And Randle has done well against them. But I think if you have Butler in some of those matchups, maybe you're like, he'll get his and it'll be okay, but you don't need to concede as many of the open shots on the opposite side. And Randle was passing really well. Yeah, that was one of the best Randall passing games we've seen this season. And even to bounce off the point, like I do think there is a little bit of a direct link to Jimmy Butler's absence defensively. You go you go more zone because you do want to try to cut off more. You do want to funnel more to specific spots. And I think if Jimmy Butler's in the lineup, especially with where they were spacing some of their guys on those Jimmy Butler uh, on the Julius Randall post ups or the ISOs, like now Jimmy's at the nail. Now Jimmy's the low man making some of these rotations, and you can allow <clears throat> somebody else to help further up because they know if the pass is made and the drive is made. Now you got to deal with Jimmy, either trying to take a charge or he's using the quick hands or he gets the vertical contest. I think they kind of had to go zone, especially with Bam off the floor, because they they just had to find a way to get the Knicks out of rhythm because they just they could not afford to allow dribble penetration because you just they are. This is already a team that helps pretty aggressively. And when you remove their best help defender, at least on the perimeter and Jimmy Butler, you have to compensate for that in some kind of way. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's it's completely correct. Let's let's. To kind of turn things the other way, so you and I are both like I think I didn't end up. Oh no, I did pick. I did pick the series. I did pick the Heat. We both picked the Heat, and we both still do it now. What is the pathway for the Knicks to win three out of the remaining five games? Um. Well, I, I think a Heat fan would steal my microphone and say, "Yeah, just make sure Scott Foster misses the ball grazing the rim on a shot clock violation in a four point swing." But <laughs> aside from that, in all seriousness, no. Um, I think getting more from the bench in general for the Knicks is going to be a big one. Like, I'm still waiting on the Emmanuel quickly game in this postseason run period offensively. Like, I think the defense has mostly been very good. Um, there was one play he just tried to shoot um, a short roll opportunity for Bam and him and Obi Toppin both ended up out of <laughs> out of <laughs> position. I think that's where Haywood Highsmith ends up getting a a layup where he drew a foul. One of the plays was a first half play. But anyway, I think the defense overall for Emmanuel quickly during this postseason run has been very good. 
I'm just waiting on the 18 point game or the 12 point fourth quarter or something from him. And so like that would be helpful. And I think just overarching theme, the Knicks just have to win the paint. They have to crack a uh, mash Miami on the offensive glass. They have to win the free throw battle, which they did to a pretty large wide margin in that game too. Um, again, you can quibble against some of the calls, but ultimately this is a team that drives a bunch. This is a team that just has a general size advantage over Miami. They can generate extra possessions, and with all the body that happens down low, like you're going to get Mitchell Robinson getting fouled. You're going to get Julius Randle getting fouled. You're going to get Josh Hart getting fouled on some of those scrums. And I still, so I still think that is the pathway for the Knicks really bringing this into the mud and just winning the possession game in that matter, because you're not going to win the math game against the Heat. Like, very quietly, the Heat, the Knicks, as good of an offense as they were, like, they didn't take a lot of threes. They weren't, they don't have a lot of shooters that you worry about. And so the Heat are going to get the threes up regardless. Um, but being able to win the paint and win the possession battle in that way, don't turn the ball over and, again, get generate those extra opportunities off the rebounds. They're going to be helpful. Uh, very helpful for Jalen Brunson to just find it um, in that second half, mm-hmm. in that third quarter, specifically in game two. Um, he's been searching for matchups and trying to figure out how to beat Miami's aggressive help. Like, they've thrown length on him a lot. And then they just kind of pinch in to help behind that. They've had Bam or Kevin Love, whoever's defending the five. Like, they've had them in a drop for most of the series so far. I would anticipate that continues. If we see more empty corner stuff with Jalen Brunson and the, the Knicks are able to space correctly around that and really stress out Miami's help, like, I think they'll be able to generate some good stuff. So, I again, I pick the Heat. I feel better about them. Like, we should not say Heat and four or Heat and four. Well, I can't say Heat and four, but you shouldn't be a Heat and five. Like, the Knicks still very much have a pathway to winning this series. They do. And that, that's why I wanted to take the time. And I think you, you laid it out really well of when grinding it up winning the possession game as being key factors in that we'll conclude with the series that i think i don't know if it's most up in the air in terms of outcome but it's most up in the air in terms of where the heck it goes over the next few days which is sixers <laughs> sixers celtics philly wins one of the more unusual fun remarkable games of the postseason Harden has one of his better playoff performances including that huge shot on Horford at the end and Boston their offense flails again in the in the crunch in crunch time and then we get the reporting on Wednesday morning that at least preliminarily it's looking like now crowned MVP Joel Embiid could play in game two it's it's a it's not what I expected for so many reasons but I want to start with this Philly simultaneously winning game one and potentially playing Embiid in game two, that to me is an extremely positive sign that Joel Embiid is doing well because I would have expected in, you know, because you're, you're kind of reading tea leaves, that it would have been more like what happened with Jimmy Butler where they won the game they needed to get and you, mm-hmm. you, you know, rest is going to help and Miami does have a longer gap between two and three than the Sixers Celtics series does. But... You have so so. My thought was like you're only going to play Joel Embiid if he's doing well, unless like he's overruling the medical staff or something else like that, which hopefully isn't happening, and usually doesn't. Mm-hmm. So again, we're we're working with incomplete information here, Dylan Brooks and a lot of other circumstances we talked about here. But to me, this seems like an indicator that Joel Embiid is feeling good. I will one echo your sentiment like we're working with incomplete information, and two, I very much hope that is the case for Joel Embiid. For Not sure. necessarily. Yeah, because I'm like you. I don't want him to be overriding the staff because he wants to get back out there. Like, you just kind of have to protect the player from the player at that point. But also, like, I think back to just the early discussions around this Embiid uh, injury, where it's, yeah, we're going to hold him out. There's some optimism that he'll be ready early in the week. And that flows into Embiid's just not available for game one. It's like, okay, so this was worse than what was initially let on. That's interesting. Also, you think about the Embiid history and going back to the overarching point like the Sixers won the game that they needed to win already and while the gap isn't as large between game two and game three as the Miami series like there is still a little bit of a gap like for me and maybe it's just me being conservative in this regard like I very much would not be playing Joel Embiid in game two like I would lead into kind of the speed and tempo that you can play with without him give him extra time since you already kind of have a game in hand bring him back against Philly let him get that hometown love after winning the MVP very well deserved by the way like I would play it that way but to your point Maybe this is a sign that, okay, it's it's healing better or it's just on the right track in terms of the healing process. I just, I don't know. Like, if it's 80% Joel Embiid in game two and he's feeling good versus the series goes back one-to-one in Philadelphia, but it's 88% Joel Embiid, like, I would just take the extra 8%, honestly. And maybe I'm just on the minority on that front, but I would play it differently. I don't think you're in the minority on that. And it's always so difficult to 
pin down why a medical staff, you know, like th- there are always going to be mysteries surrounding that. And I mean, and I used to give them a lot more deference than I do after what happened with Kevin Durant, but you don't know. And we'll, we'll get a much better understanding of that later on Wednesday when game two happens. I, I'm not even really going to be caring too much about the result. I mean, if Philly wins, then we've got, we've got a very different conversation to have. So I guess I am caring about the mm-hmm. result, but like, even though Philly won game one, their pathway to being victorious in the series, making the conference finals, potentially making the NBA finals and winning the whole thing is Joel Embiid being Joel Embiid. Like that is, that is the way they can do it. Just, and that's in no way, shape or form different than any other team that's still in the mix so Mm -hmm. what he looks like and how we can extrapolate that forward for a couple of days for game three about you know a week or two for a theoretical next round and then you know a couple weeks beyond that for a potential NBA finals like that is my a b and c for game two no, that makes sense. Like, I already had Embiid-centric questions heading into the series. Like, naturally, he's Philadelphia's best player. And so you think about what the Philly matchups against Boston have been like the last couple of years. Like, this isn't a team that just aggressively doubles Joel Embiid. It's very much a we will shade help towards him if the spacing is bad, but we will let Al Horford handle it one-on-one. And then once Joel Embiid makes his move, we are either sending a double right in front of his face and throwing off his timing, or we are sending that uh, sending that double baseline and we're going to throw off the timing. And Boston just generally does a really good job at mix again when they want to send help and where they want to send it from. Um, how aggressive do you go into that gambit if Joel Embiid is now at 80%? If you feel like, okay, these post-ups are more likely to not to end in jumpers. Can we live with Al Horford one-on-one? And we can just kind of choke off the three-point opportunities for Philadelphia. Like, that's very interesting to me. And then defensively, even a Joel Embiid that isn't fully healthy, like he's still very much a deterrent at the rim and drop. But if you're now getting drop as opposed to the switching you were getting from Paul Reed or just at the level and dropping back that you were seeing from Paul Reed, if it's drop, does that open up easier shot opportunities for Boston? And is that a way for them to really get their offense back going? And it wasn't like they had a bad offensive performance in game one. Like it sputtered towards the end and they had, you know, some of the decision making and process questions that I've had with Boston throughout this year. They popped up at an untimely time. But they still scored relatively efficiently. If you're just giving them drop against Joel Embiid now and he can't get up to the level because they're trying to conserve the knee, like, does it make it easier for Boston to get in the flow? Does that put more pressure now on Philadelphia's offense to score against Boston's set defense and they're more locked in because Embiid is back? It's going to be a fun dynamic to follow if Embiid, when, whenever Embiid comes back. It's also a dynamic that we're going to have to follow, like, kind of game to game, minute to minute, because knees are knees can be complicated and and especially because this is a less common injury like what kind of movements he can do what kind of movements he can't do and that's also going to be imperative for joe missoula and the the celtics personnel to test those things out you know to see Mm -hmm. it and that's something a, a piece of criticism i think was completely fair for the knicks in game one was that after jimmy butler got hurt they didn't put him in enough action to see what he could or could not do and considering the times that he straight up couldn't move to get rebounds, like, there was an opportunity there. And so for Boston, it's not, oh, you know, like, you think back to, like, those bat, the, the, the heel professional wrestlers who are like, a guy has a bad knee and you're, like, stomping on it and doing all this stuff. No, this is basketball. If a player is on the floor and they are compromised, it is incumbent upon you to see where and how they can do what they can do. Mm-hmm. And to that front, like, uh, because I'm here and I'm on the show, I have to bring up a Spain pick and roll it's in some capacity. Like, Boston has been spamming Spain pick and roll in this postseason. We saw it a lot in the Atlanta series. And, buddy, if you're telling me we have a less than 100% Joel Embiid on the floor and we don't know if he's getting up to the level, first possession of the game, I am going Spain. We are screening big fella. <laughs> we are about to see how well he can move. So I wouldn't be surprised if Boston goes after that kind of, those kind of actions early. I would not be surprised either. I've already, I've already kept you for a while, but is there anything else that you're looking for? Anything else you want to discuss? Um, off the top of my head, I guess just with this series, uh, finding a coverage that Al Horford is comfortable in mm. is going to be very important because in that Atlanta series, it was not always great. Trey Young eventually got going against Al Horford in the drop, and some of those switches from Al Horford turned into switches and doubles. And we saw very briefly in that game one against Philly, we saw some switch and double with Horford as well. Um, the drop got dinged a bit. Robert Williams also got dinged in the drop, but for Horford in particular, like he has to hold up because he's the five on the roster that really gives them scheme versatility, like someone that can drop back, someone that can get closer to the level, someone that can switch. Robert Williams, I guess, I, I don't even know how much of it is him still trying to work his way back or it's just, okay, we're not getting 100% Robert Williams this year based on how it's gone. But like it's a deeper drop with Robert Williams and that's just kind of been it. 
when he's directly engaged. So if Al Horford can't get back to being a B plus or better in multiple schemes, it gets a little bit problematic whether or not Embiid is back or not. It also gets challenging for Boston potentially beyond this series should they should they advance, which is of course not guaranteed. Is if you don't have that scheme versatility, we don't know who they're going to face if they make the conference finals or the NBA finals, but that could be a huge problem, especially in the NBA finals, depending on who makes it through. Mm-hmm. And even in the conference finals, like you think about Miami and the shooting and their ability to get your defense moving just in terms of the actions they make, that could be something to keep an eye on with Al Horford. Um, something that I forgot to cite um, heading into the ball. Embiid being out just kind of killed it for me for that game one. Like Boston pre All Star break, they were I think they were the best defensive rebound rate team in the NBA, and then post All Star break they slipped the 13th, which is still solid but not great. If Horford can't hold up, like what does that look like against a Mitchell Robinson if that ends up being the Eastern Conference Finals? Like that, I am very keyed in on what Al Horford looks like moving forward. <laughs> Another thing I want to keep an eye on just briefly because we were talking about with Boston is part of it might be the Missoula change, part of it might be just the available talent. They really haven't forced turnovers near the same rate this year. And that winning the possession yep. game, or at least winning that phase of the possession game, could be really valuable against the Sixers. And I wanna I'm wondering whether we see that at some point during this series. Yeah, like I think that's a key point. And again, that kind of bleeds into okay, what is the defensive rebound looking like? Because if you're not forcing turnovers, you have to be able to end possessions at a very high rate. Have to just to make sure you aren't getting beat in the possession game. So that's a very astute point on your front on your part. Um, if there's anything else I want to point out, uh, I guess just very briefly, watching the LeBron usage has been interesting oh, yeah. all yeah. season long. Like I've I've very much been the hey, where are the drives? Where are the drives? But I've also appreciated some of the counters. Like one just on a very basic level posting them up a little bit more like it looked like the, that use was a little bit sparse within the first couple of games of the Memphis series but that's perked up uh LeBron doesn't have to drive from 28 feet if he can get a post touch eight feet from the basket now he can just kind of face up or just spin baseline and now it's a dribble or two and he's at the rim so that's a way to short circuit it also a lot more LeBron as a spacer LeBron you know passing and cutting or just running into the catch and being able to generate rim pressure that way like that's been very cool um just seeing if he can keep that up if he can find different ways to pressure the rim um because I if it just turns into a whole bunch of LeBron jump shots I don't really love it for the Lakers um, on top of him just not making those shots right now um, I, yeah, I, 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 I hadn't I hadn't thought about this until now sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you but I think that, I think you're gonna have a bounce back on this over the years I have lampooned a lot of teams including the Lakers for putting capable dribblers around LeBron James the idea basically being like oh we you know the supplemental creation to lighten his load because it's always been ridiculous it's like well why would you ever want anybody to have it other than LeBron and then, and that was a key, the, you know, the acquired Russell Westbrook two years ago, like that was a key part of that two years ago, a part of that decision. And it ends up being extremely valuable for the Lakers, just basically with none of the players they anticipated filling that role. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny how that works out. But yeah, in addition to, I mean, one, LeBron has just been playing for a long time. He's a lot more menace than anyone, all that good stuff. Like you do want to alleviate the burden if you can, which is what makes the Anthony Davis play so important. Like, again, I think he's been their best player this year. And that's a good thing, forward but even beyond that like LeBron James being able to operate off the ball again just being a spacer that hasn't worked out super well but being able to catch and go the passing cuts and then getting the ball right back and generating rim pressure that way the post-ups him being used more as a screener it's easier to unlock all of that stuff if you have more capable ball handlers so I'm glad the Lakers even though it isn't the partners that you expected (laughs) during the LeBron era I'm glad that they finally found some answers to where okay we can get LeBron off the ball D'Angelo Russell can run this ball screen Austin Reeves can get downhill and he can screen for LeBron and make that easier or he can use LeBron as a screener and navigate some stuff that way. Dennis Schroeder, very important drives in the game one against Golden State. Like they they found enough to kind of supplement uh, where LeBron James is in terms of age and also just the foot injury that he's been dealing with. It's a great point and I mean We'll see how far the Lakers go, but this I, I, get, I get this Lakers team, I think. I, I appreciate their the theory of the case a lot more for them now than I did before, and, that, and that's great, and we want to see these teams teams work it out, and it's even though this isn't the LeBron that we, you know, that you and I probably, like, grew up with and, 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 and grew, grew as analysts with, I can still appreciate what he brings to the table. I mean, even the, going back to, was that game four against Memphis where he just put the pedal to the metal for the last five minutes in overtime? Like, that, you still see that, and yeah. it's pretty exciting. 
Yeah, we and just an overarching thing with LeBron, with Steph, everyone, like we all we have to just appreciate the greatness that we're seeing from some of the older superstars we have. Like the James Harden game was awesome. The Steph game was awesome. LeBron reconfiguring his attack on the fly. Like that's awesome. These are Hall of Fame level players, man. We we just gotta have fun watching them hoop. And we're seeing the not only the kind of the middle generation, there was a big question with that group, and of course Giannis stepped up first, but Jokic and Embiid as well, and then starting to see that kind of the group below. I mean, Devin Booker was the second, probably the second best player of the first round, and I don't know if this is going to be his series because of some other elements that are working against him, but we're starting, like, the the pool of players who can be the best player in a championship team, I don't know that it's expanded just yet, but it's coming soon, and I hope it's this year. Yeah, we, we need to see it. All right, well, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me, man. Always a pleasure. Thanks again to Nikaias Duncan for taking the time to come on. You can listen to his excellent work on the Dunker Spot podcast, which is so cool that it's now part of 342 Productions, which is what has JJ Reddick, still been three, and growing another growing media entity within our world. And it's always good to see talented people do well. And Nikias and Steve Jones definitely fit that description. They're also doing really good work on playback if you're not checking that out and that's a great reason if you don't already to follow Nikias Duncan on Twitter his handle is at Nikias NBA N-E-K-I-A-S NBA check out anything he's involved in and it will work it'll make you better as a as somebody who will teach you about the game and I mean the enthusiasm that he and Steve bring I think is just so great and they've done some broadcasts of the Wimbanyama games and a lot of other great stuff I'm sure they will continue that in the future if you want to support the show there are a lot of different things you can do you can subscribe download every episode whatever podcast player you use really do appreciate it never going to come out on a specific day of the week my guests and my own time are always very Changeable, let's put it that way. Um, so subscribing really works for that. You can also help other people find the show, leaving a rating and review in that podcast player if you're choosing, or word of mouth, social media, all that really helps. But the single most important thing you can do for Real GM Radio and any other show that has them is to check out our sponsors. And for this episode, that is FanDuel. Go to fanduel.com slash Boston. Get that no sweat first bet up to $1,000, which is pretty awesome. You can also check out my other work, Nate Duncan and I, the other, and Duncan that I record with, <laughs> that I record with, um, doing Dunked On, Dunked On Prime. Not only are we doing playoff analysis, but we're going to really get started with our off-season work. That's free agency. That's the draft. I actually started watching draft footage this week, which is pretty exciting. Love doing that. Really in the preliminary stages of that, of course, to be sure. And then... My written work at The Athletic, have, I have a couple pieces in process. None of them are ready to publish just yet. If you want to read something that's timely-ish, you could check out the piece I wrote on Austin Reeves and the Arenas Provision. It's from a few weeks ago, but it's still salient, and he's doing a good job in the Western Conference semis. So you can take a look at that. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take some time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I'm not the greatest at responding, but I do read everything. It's something I do every single day before I go to bed. And that is all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.